<laughs> good morning, or good afternoon, three minutes. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing today? Good? All right. Well, last weekend, uh, we celebrated Easter. It was an amazing celebration. Uh, if you were here last week for the first time and you came back, welcome back. We love that you're here, and we love the family to be here. Uh, Pastor Mark challenged us last week to come for six weeks and hear uh, the words of Jesus. You know, after he uh, resurrected and revealed himself to the disciples, you know, the, you know we, we understand the beautiful sacrifice that he did because of the resurrection. You know, he, he proved to be who he said he was. But then he asked his disciples to meet him at a specific place, and he gave them a task. Uh, I'm going to read from Matthew 28, uh, a very known passage known as the Great Commission, um, verses 16 to 20. Listen to the words of Jesus. It says, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for your love that you showed us on the cross, and we thank you for your word. Uh, and I know, Father, that you gave us a very specific task before you left, and we would like to just understand exactly what it means. So please speak to us, touch our hearts, and transform us, Father. We ask you in the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, you know, we, um, there is a very ironic thing uh, happening in the generation that we live. Uh, we live in the generation that has more access to entertainment than any other generation in the history of mankind. You realize that? You know, um, when I was a boy, the TV had five channels. Do you, anyone remembers that here? The first TV I saw was in black and white. You know, there were no remote controls. You know, people, instead of remote controls, had children. You know, they send them to change the channel, you know. Like, there was no cable TV. There was no movie channels. Of course, there was no internet, no cellular phones. Up until today, my youngest daughter asked me, how did you guys live without internet? She just doesn't understand it. You know, uh, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to a movie theater, remember? Or you could wait 10 years until they showed it on Sunday on TV. But usually you would go to the movie theater. And to find out what was playing at the movie theater, you needed a newspaper. Remember newspapers? You know, those papers that you used to look for the movie theaters and find out what they were showing and at what times. And if you did not have a newspaper, then you had to call the theater. And we had those phones, remember that? You know, they had one line, and if the line was busy, you know, until you went through and asked about them. Nowadays, you know, you have hundreds of channels on the TV. You know, we have internet, we have streaming services, and as Karina, my wife, was telling me this morning, she's like, and yet you always say, 
there's nothing to watch. No? I mean, th this is the irony of this generation, you know? Um, we have more entertainment than we've ever had, but you know, specialists have realized that this is also the generation that is more bored with life. You know, I read an article written by a millennial, not, no longer the young generation millennials, but she wrote an article called, Why is my generation so bored with life? And this is the conclusion that she arrived at after a certain research. She says, we are bored because we're waiting for life to happen. That was very interesting to read, you know, because the truth is, we all have inside of us the need to be part of something big, you know, to participate in some big adventure, you know, to, to, to succeed against all odds, you know, to, to feel alive. This is why, you know, many men and some women love epic movies. You know, those movies where they have to fight against great obstacles and the good guys defeat the bad guys and they win the day and you're at the theater and you want to participate from your seat. You know, and, and, and women and some men love romantic comedy because it's a different type of battle. You know, the battle for the heart of a person that against all odds conquers. You know, the, 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 usually, you know, the trauma of the movies is always the same. You know, this guy who loves the girl and the girl doesn't even know that happiness is in front of her nose, you know. She's looking at somebody else and the guy fights and at the end wins her heart and everybody's happy. You know why, why we feel that way when we see these things? Because God put that in you. He put in your heart the need to be part of something great. And the problem that we're facing is that everything that we use to entertain ourselves is turning us more and more into spectators. So instead of living a great adventure, you know, you're seeing the great adventure and you get all excited. You know, that's why we watch sports. And yeah, everybody gets so excited. And you're seeing people do something and you get excited about it. That's why some people play video games and they're killing bad guys. And they, do you realize that even if you win in the video game, you didn't really win anything? You're just in your living room, you know? But, but that, that's what happens, you know? So, see, this is important for you to understand because, see, Jesus, before he left, gave us a task, inviting us to participate in the biggest adventure of the universe. There is a cosmic battle happening right now, the battle for the heart of men, you know, mankind. Because this battle, you know, what we gain is not more terrain, We extend the kingdom of God by gaining the heart of people to God. And he gave you a part in it. He called you and gave you a task. What is the task? To make disciples. So I, I think that it's very important that in order for us to fulfill that great commission, we answer this important question. What exactly does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? We need to have that concept very clear in our head if we're going to fulfill it. What exactly did Jesus send us to do? So I have noticed that uh, oftentimes people misinterpret that verse and, and, and tells us that we need to go and do things that by themselves does not mean discipling. You know, they say, it says that you need to go. So go. You know, it, it says that you need to baptize. It says that you need to teach. 
But you know what's interesting? In the original language, the only commandment in that passage is to make disciples. A better translation of that passage would be, as you go, make disciples. As you baptize, make disciples. As you teach, make disciples. The word disciple or discipleship appears 270 times, approximately 269 actually, in the New Testament. Do you know how many times the word Christian appears in the New Testament? Three times. So apparently, for Jesus, it's a lot more important that we produce disciples regardless of the label that we hang on ourselves. We need to disciple, okay? So the concept can be confusing because some people get, you know, so concentrated on the trees that they miss the forest altogether. I hear people saying things like, okay, so if I memorize the Bible or if I had more willpower, but that's not what Jesus said here. So, so what is exactly what Jesus defines as a disciple? This text tells us of three things that mark a disciple. Let's look at them. The first one, we can find it in verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, baptism is a concept that uh, people don't fully understand what it really means. See, a lot of people think that baptism is something that you do once you have been transformed. You know, if you're living already a different life, then you can be baptized. That's why you ask people, have you been baptized? No, I'm not ready. You know, what they're saying is like, I haven't really changed. Other people think that in order to be baptized, you have to be able to pass a theological test. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. See, people is baptized when they understand their salvation. When they understand what Jesus did for them on the cross, that he died so that you could have life. So a disciple of Jesus Christ understands that we used to belong to the world, but now we belong to God. We used to be enslaved to sin, but now we've been freed by God. See, the, the Bible describes the old life that we had with different images. You know, it, it tells us that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were blind spiritually. We couldn't possibly see. And one of the ways that it describes it is by saying that we were orphans. That means we did not have a spiritual father. We were lost in this world of darkness, and we were trying to find our identity by ourselves. So in this text, you know, uh, being baptized, what it literally means is to be re-identified with your father. You know, to receive a new identity in God. This is a little bit different to understand in our modern mindset, you know, 21st century mindset. But in biblical times, see, the identity of a person was tied to their name and who their father was. This is why you see in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, when they talk about people, they always talk about their name and their father's name. Like uh, John and James were the sons of Zebedee. You know, when, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus tells him, Simon, son of Jonah, you know, your name and your father. Even Jesus, when he goes to his hometown and performs miracles, people are surprised and say, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? 
know, they are identifying him as the person. It's like that's his identity. In our culture today, we do that to a certain extent without realizing the relevance, the historical relevance of what we're doing. Some of us named our firstborns with our name. You know, we're giving them that identity. And we definitely give them our last names. You know, and in some families, you, you, you hear them make reference to this type of inheritance in regards to the last name. You know, like I remember hearing things when I was a kid like, behave like a Monroy. What does that mean? I mean, I had a lot of Monroys in my family, and there was very different behaviors, you know, like what, what exactly do you, which one, you know, which Monroy are you talking about? You know, what they're saying is honor your name, honor your inheritance, you know? So that is the identity back then and the identity today. But I want you to look again at the passage and see what it's telling us. What is it that Jesus told us to do to make disciples? Yeah, he said, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Go and baptize them. So what Jesus is saying is, go to the nations and find all the orphans of this world. You know, all the sinners, all the broken people, everyone that is tired, you know, brokenhearted, separated from God, and trying to find their identity in things of this world. Go to those people and tell them that they have a father in heaven that loves them. That he loves them so much that he sent his very own son to die on the cross for them so that they would receive forgiveness of their sins and they would be sealed with the Holy Spirit to belong to his family. So tell the orphans that I want to adopt them, that they can come home. So that's the first thing that a disciple is. It means to be adopted by God. See, God gives you a new name. He's telling us to go and tell people, to all the orphans that are finding right now their identity and the things that they do and the things that they have. He says, go and tell those orphans that through adoption and through baptism, they can become sons or daughters of God. And I will give them a new identity. They will be children of God. So that's what a disciple is. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have a new identity. You have a new name. I have a new name. My identity is Marco, son of God. That's it. It's not what I do. It's not what I have accomplished. It's not what I leave behind. I am the son of God. And that is the first mark of a disciple. He has adopted you as a son or a daughter and given you a new name. Okay, the second thing that Jesus talks about, it's in verse 20. He says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, there's two concepts here that we need to talk about. See, um, one of the biggest problems that we're facing right now in, in the church is that a lot of people are not really concerned with working hard at growing spiritually. You know, like they, they don't really desire that, that spiritual growth. But you have to understand that any discipleship that only teaches us justification by faith, you know, that means that you are now right before the eyes of God by faith, but it doesn't teach you sanctification by faith. The fact that your faith is also going to transform you, that's not only a reduced gospel, it's the wrong gospel. 
Because that gospel, you know, leads you to believe that the conversion is the end of the race. When in reality, it's the beginning of the race. See, being adopted into God's family is not the end goal of your life. It's the beginning of your new life. We are adopted and we are babies, spiritually speaking, in Christ. And our goal is to become adults in Him. So a disciple, it's a person that is not only adopted by God, but it's transformed by God. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be transformed by God. Okay, so we not only become part of a new family, but we little by little start resembling that new family. Just think of how adoption works in our society. You know, if you adopt a child from a different culture, they come to your house and they come with their ideas and their culture and their habits, but little by little, they start being transformed into the family. And this is what happens to us or what should happen to us. We have to start looking more and more and more like our father, okay? Now, it's important that we understand all these ideas because look at what Jesus said. He started by saying, teach them. Teach them these things. See, up until this moment, every time in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew talked about the teacher, who was he talking about? Who was he referring to? This is not a trick question. Who was he talking about? Jesus. Remember this. When somebody asks something in church, if you say Jesus, it's always right. So just say Jesus. Correct. Okay? But anyway, up until that point in Matthew, uh, every time that he talks about the teacher, he's talking about Jesus. But at this instance, Jesus is saying, now I'm living. Now you're the teacher. Now you go and teach them. And, and what are we supposed to teach? He said, everything that he commanded us. Okay, so think about what a tragedy it is, what's happening in the church today. You know, study after study shows that right now there is a complete lack of biblical knowledge in the evangelical church in this generation. Most people do not have first-hand knowledge of the Bible. Listen, I remember when I first became a believer. You know, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I really do not remember a, a, a time in my life when I did not believe in God. You know, my parents, especially my grandmother, talked to us about God all the time. So I believed in God, and I went to church every Sunday, and I heard the Bible read, small portions of the Bible, but I heard it read in, in church, and I thought that I knew the Bible. You know, and then when I went to the first evangelical church and I started hearing the Bible preached, studied, and explained, I realized I really didn't know almost anything of the Bible. But you know what that created in my heart? I wanted to know more about the Bible. You know, I wanted to understand what the Bible said because at that time I realized, man, I don't understand what this is. And I realized that a lot of people in church, you know, feel like because they come to church, they know the Bible. So they are being discipled by association. You know, I talk to people in Cancun all the time, and I ask them, so, so how are you doing? Like, I'm doing good. Are you studying? The yes, yes. I mean, some, this guy's group. So we believe that because we listen to good teachers, we're biblically sound. You know, but that's not what's required of you. 
What's required of you is that you receive knowledge from the Bible, that you feed yourself, that you meditate on the Bible, and you come up with things that God talks to you when you're studying it. It's a great danger when a church has excellent teachers because then people just want to hear the word instead of study the word. Listen, there's two sides to this coin. On one side, you cannot make the teachers responsible for your discipleship. You should be as familiarized with your Bible as the teachers are. Actually, part of your responsibility when you come to church is to make sure that what's preached is written in the Bible. You know, that you go out and says, like, he said these things. Where are they? What, what, what passage did he say? And you go and look it up and say, like, yeah, that's what it says. The reason why there are so many churches teaching distorted doctrines is because people don't check. They just hear it and go, like, okay, so that's the truth. And people have a lot of ideas of what the Bible says that are not in the Bible. So what's required of you is that you have firsthand knowledge of the Bible. Product of your own study. Why? Because Jesus sent all of us to teach. In that great commission, he says, now go and make disciples and teach them. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, isn't that your job? Well, yes. But it's also your job because Jesus gave it to you. And that doesn't mean that you're going to have to come up here and teach in front of a thousand people. But it does mean that at some point in your life, you're going to have to teach someone. You're going to have to speak about what God did in your life. You're going to have to be his witness. You have to learn. You have to know your Bible. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm really nervous to do that because I don't know the Bible really well. Well, what do you think you should do then? <laughs> Study the Bible. <laughs> so... You need, you know, to, to, to learn the Bible. It's, it, it's really sad, you know. Uh, survey after survey show the lack of knowledge that we have. Actually, uh, there's a study that I read. Um, this was done in uh, 2016 that discovered that, you know, non-Christian groups like active atheists, Mormons, and Jehovah Witnesses, are more familiarized with the claims of the Bible than many Christians. You know what that means? They know better what we believe than we do. And you know what also means? We say that the Bible is our authority, but in reality, we are our authority. Because if you don't know what the Bible says, how can the Bible be your authority? You're living based on what you think it says, which might not be the same thing as what it says. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and then you want to fulfill the great commission and make other disciples, knowing the Bible is an absolute need, okay? Now, I know that studying the Bible is intimidating, especially if you've never done it. You know, open your Bible, start reading it. But you have to remember why we do that, and it won't be as intimidating. We go to the Bible because that's where we find Jesus. You're not trying to become a Bible scholar. You're trying to have communion with God. And the only way to do that is through the Bible. There's, you know, a few challenges to this. There's people comes up with all kinds of excuses, you know, reasons why they don't study the Bible. Uh, I heard once a person actually said to me, you know, no, because 
if you have too much knowledge of the Bible, your relationship with God is going to get colder. And, and, and you're like, how do you figure that out? It's like, look at the Pharisees. They knew the Bible by heart. And yet, you know, they didn't have a good relationship with Jesus. They, their, their heart grew cold towards him. Do you know that that's exactly the opposite of the case with the Pharisees? You know, the, the, the reason why Jesus condemned the Pharisees was not because of their amount of knowledge of the Bible, but because of their lack of knowledge of the Bible. The Pharisees were people that had so small an understanding of the Scriptures that all they were trying to do was make themselves look great in the eyes of other men. They were self-satisfying above everything else. So they always arrived to the wrong conclusions with the knowledge that they had. See, Jesus, what he said to them was like, you people study the scriptures, you know, but because you think that the scriptures are going to give you life. But the scriptures testify about me, and you're not looking for me. You're just satisfying yourself. So you need to study the Bible in search of communion with God and never be afraid of studying it. Go to it. You know, another uh, risk that we have or, or, or problem that we have in regards to this is a lot of people listen to these statistics who say most of the church don't know the Bible and you think he's not talking to me. You think, yeah, those ignorant people, you know, like do you realize the amount of things that we have to learn from the Bible? You know, what I have learned is that the more I study the Bible, the more I get deeper into the Bible, the more I realize how much more I have to learn. And, and, and it makes you want to learn. You, you know, if, if anything has made me want to learn more of the Bible, has been the need to teach it. Because you read things in a different way when you know you're going to have to teach them. You pay attention in a different way if you're going to have to explain it to someone else. But if you don't think that you have to teach it, then you barely hear it. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Well, a little bit, you know. <laughs> what I want is to encourage you that you will start to want to know your Bible better. You know, there, there are so many resources. There's, there, there's people around you. There's mentors. There's teachers. You know, I'm not trying to say when I say don't make us responsible. I'm not trying to say we're not here to help you. We will help you. But you have to want to know. Deal Moody said this, I have never seen a fruit-producing Christian that was not a student of the Bible. Very few mature because very few study. So if you want to have a deeper relationship with God, there's no other way than to know the Bible. But now there's another concept on that verse that is very important. Listen again to what Jesus said. He said, and teach them to obey. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, what exactly does that mean? What he's saying is, you're not going to the Bible just to accumulate knowledge. What you want is for that information to produce an action that will produce transformation in your heart. You have to grow in obedience. You have to obey the commands of God. And here's where the thing gets tricky. Because this is where the Pharisees were lost. They concentrated on the outer laws that they could actually fulfill by willpower. But their hearts, Jesus said, were rotten. 
Why? So this, this ties us up to a sermon that Pastor Mark preached a few weeks ago. You remember the sermon, Love One Another? You know, we're, 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 uh, Pastor Mark taught us how you know, they asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus surprises this teacher of the law by telling him, well, there's actually two. Or if you want to see it in a different way, it's one commandment with two parts, which means you can not fulfill one without the other. And what were the two commandments? Love God above everything else and love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, Jesus goes on to get the bar higher by saying, love one another as I loved you. So the two most important commandments are based on love. You know, so when Jesus says, go and make disciples and teach them to obey, what we cannot do is to separate the great commission from the great commandment. You know, we cannot go and make disciples without teaching them about love and loving them in the process. So if you combine the great commission and the great commandment, I think that we would make disciples in an easier way. Go and make disciples of all nations, showing them how to love God above all else and loving them as I loved you and then teaching them to obey these things. I believe that if all Christians followed those two things, making disciples would be a lot easier. Now, we know that no one can be perfectly obedient to the Word of God except Jesus was obedient. But at least you want to have one to change. You know, there, there has to be a, 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 a pain in your heart when you see the things that are not changing. So I'll give you a, a fast practical application in regards to this. You know, if, if you truly want God to transform your heart, sit down, you know, take some time and make a list of areas where you know that your heart needs to change. You know your weaknesses. So sit down and write them down. And if you cannot think of one, ask your mate. They'll help you in a hurry, okay? And this is what you do. See, this we did with our groups of men, you know, in, in, in Cancun, and it, it worked amazingly well. See, you first make a covenant with God. Pick your weakness. You know, in, in the life of many men, the weakness is lost. So I said, make a covenant with God and tell him, Father, I want to make a covenant with you because I want to have a pure heart. So help me get root that out of my heart and write a prayer in regards to that. And every time a thought comes to your head in regards to that, that moment, you immediately say, Father, help me to fulfill this covenant that I made with you. Help me by giving me the strength. Take that thought out of my head right now and let me concentrate on the good things Let me put my mind on the wife that you gave me. Let me put my mind in you that you fulfill me. Give me a pure heart. Every time that thought comes, go to your prayer. Every time. And you're going to realize that all of a sudden, the moment that thought comes in, the prayer overrides it. If you make the habit of that prayer. And little by little, you start having victory by the power of God over your biggest temptations. But you have to want to change. So, to follow him, we have to obey him. And just so you don't get discouraged, remember that growth is not a perfect curve of, you know, growth. You know, it, it, it's a very rocky road. 
Sometimes there will be seasons of growth that are very fast. And sometimes it will feel like a slow process. Oftentimes, you don't realize how much you've grown until you look back and you see the past and you compare it to the present and you realize how much you have changed. But at the moment, it didn't feel like you were growing. Okay, but the point is, don't give up. Keep going because you are changing even if you don't notice. It's like kids growing. They don't notice that they're growing. But you stop seeing a kid for five years old and you see them and say, oh my God, you've grown. The same thing happens to you. So don't give up. So first, you go from orphan to the baby of God. And second, you go from baby to an adult. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that this second part is really hard. You know, in the world that we're living, with the amount of distractions that we have, with the rhythm of the life that we live here, you know, we're all just very aware of our weaknesses, of maybe our lack of knowledge of the Bible, our failures or imperfections. But the good news here is that our trust doesn't have to be placed on us and our ability to do these things, but in God. You know, we're adopted and shaped by God. But you know what's the fuel behind all this? The fuel is God. And this leads us to the third characteristic of a, of a disciple. See, Jesus gave us two truths that we need to take with us as we fulfill the Great Commission. First one is in verse 18. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Look at what he's saying. All authority in heaven, you know, all the heavenly realms, and on earth, that means the known universe. So everywhere, you know, physical or not physical, All the authority has been given to Jesus. And then he says in verse 20, and surely I am, in present tense, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is Jesus saying? I have all the authority in the universe. This is my mission. I am going to fulfill it so it's not going to fail. Because I'm performing it. I'm going to do it. And guess what? I have decided to use you to accomplish this mission it doesn't matter if you have doubts if you have failures if you have weaknesses it doesn't matter if it if, if you grow fast or slow it doesn't even matter if you trip every once in a while i am going to use you and i am with you always i'm never going to leave you alone it is the presence the permanent presence of jesus in your life that is going to transform you and help extend his kingdom, fulfill the commission. Thank God we do not depend on our strength, our intelligence, or our wisdom. You know, I just find it so appropriate that in the beginning of the gospel, um, they call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because at the end of the gospel, he's saying, Emmanuel, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is the third characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a person that is empowered by God to fulfill his mission. So you have to remember this always. You know, uh, spiritual maturity is not fueled by shame or guilt. It is fueled by Jesus in your heart. Now, if you want to be even more encouraged, I want you to pay attention to the group of people that he was talking to and the way that they reacted when they saw him. Remember what we read in verses 16 and 17? 
Listen to what it says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. The 11 disciples. We're talking about the people that lived with Jesus for three years. He had been teaching them for all this time. And look what happened. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So these guys that saw Jesus do miracles, walk on water, bring people back from the dead, being crucified, died, buried, resurrected, and they come and they see him, and some of them were like, I don't know, man. Yeah. They doubted. You know what this means? He gave the Great Commission not to a group of great theologians, of men of great faith or perfect, to ordinary people like you and I that even after the resurrection, they had doubts. We have no idea what those doubts were, but still Jesus gave the sacred mission of bringing the gospel to the world to these doubtful worshipers. Do you relate? Are you a doubtful worshiper? Well, Jesus wants to use you. That's the group of people that he picked. So you need to move. You need to go. Make disciples. Now, it often happens that when I preach this type of sermons, people feel conviction in their heart, which is a good thing. But if you feel conviction in your heart, please do not run to guilt or shame. Run to Jesus. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is to show you your heart, to show you what's there that needs to be changed. So the moment that you see it, what you have to do is let the Holy Spirit guide you because what he's going to do is point you to Jesus. People say to me all the time, this sermon slapped me. Well, that's good news. Now let God into that area of your life and let him invade that area. If you have given your life to Jesus, I have two questions for you. First one, are you still growing? Can you still see yourself changing? Do you identify those areas and you put them in God's hands? Can you look at the past and say like, yes, I'm still growing? Or have you stopped? You need to want to keep changing. No one ever gets perfection on this earth, so there's room to grow. And the second question is this, in what area of influence has God put you in? Because wherever you are right now, wherever, that's where you have to leave the Great Commission. Wherever. Should we go to the nations? Of course. And there will be people that will be called to go to the nations. But you cannot forsake your neighbor for the nations. Actually, Don't you think that the best way to get to all the nations would be if every Christian will first reach their neighbor and we would expand like that? So we need to make disciples. That's our calling. Sometimes teaching by word, sometimes by example, sometimes serving. So I know that the group in this room today is divided in two. You may be here today, and you may still be a spiritual orphan. And I want you to know that you can receive adoption from God right now. All you have to do is ask him. He wants you to be part of his family. 
And we would love for you to be part of this family in Christ. And if you are here and you have already given your life to Christ, you need to grow. Stop delaying. There's never going to be the perfect time. You're invited to the most amazing adventure in the universe. So participate. That's why people are bored. You know, go and live the life that God allowed you to live. Make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father, um, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your son. Thank you so much for adopting us, making us part of your family. Help us grow and give us the courage, Father, to make disciples of all nations. And I ask you for all the orphans that will hear these words. Father, touch their hearts. Make your presence be felt. Show them how much you love them. May this be the day when they ask you. Thank you for your adoption. We pray these words in Jesus' name. Amen.